Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. In 2005, the novelist David Foster Wallace stepped to the podium at Kenyon College's commencement ceremony, greeted the graduating class, and began his address like this. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over to the other and goes, What the heck's water? I think this is a sermon about that water. It's about the context in which we live and move and have our being that are also so close to us, so completely encompassing of our lives that they're mostly invisible to us. Invisible at least until some older, wiser fish swims past and asks, so how's the water? I thought I might begin also by asking you to raise your hand if you've ever read an entire book of the Bible in one sitting. But I won't do that. Part of the cultural water Episcopalian swim in is that under no circumstances do we raise our hands in church, <laughs> which would be a strange thing to, for people swimming in other streams of the Christian church to hear. But you have in fact read a book of the Bible all the way through in one sitting if you didn't nod off during the reading from Philemon. That was the whole thing. 335 words. It's the length Robin wishes my blog posts would be, but that they always ramble way past. But epistles swim in invisible waters themselves, don't they? Or here's a different metaphor that might help. It's been said that reading an epistle is like overhearing one half of a phone conversation. You can badly misinterpret what you hear if you don't have a sense of what the person on the other end of the line is talking about, right? So it is with all of Scripture, but especially with the letters of the New Testament. We have to know their context. We have to know what and whom they were responding to. We've got to know the water they were swimming in to make sense of them at all. Paul's letter to Philemon is a prime example. It was written to the leader of an early house church, and its subject seems to be the return of one of Philemon's slaves, this man named Onesimus. Pro-slavery southerners used Philemon to defend the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. They argued that since Paul sent Onesimus back to his master without questioning the institution of slavery or Philemon's right to own Onesimus, therefore the Bible must condone slavery. Christian abolitionists read the epistle pretty differently. But let's still sit for a moment with the fact that Paul didn't call slavery per se into question, regardless of how effusive he was about his so-called, his new so-called son in Christ, an enslaved human being named Onesimus. Well, some of the water this letter swims in is the nature of slavery itself in the first century Roman Empire. Raymond Brown tells us that this society was highly stratified from the top, stratified from the top to the bottom. At the upper echelons would be Romans who had been appointed to administer in the provinces Next would be the local privileged class, whether according to wealth or heredity. 
then local shop owners, small landowners, craftspeople, then men and women who'd been released from slavery, either by purchasing their own freedom or, or by the action of their masters. And at the very bottom would have been the vast, vast number of enslaved people upon whom, whose labor the empire's wealth and spread depended. People who might have become slaves because they were prisoners of war or had fallen into debt or were simply born to other slaves. On Labor Day weekend, we might do well to think how much our society has changed and maybe how much it hasn't. But such was the world into which Paul wrote this letter. It was stratified from top to bottom, and perhaps most significantly, those strata were just part of the way things were to most people. Like gravity, or weather, or traffic, or taxes, inescapable facts of life most folks just dealt with as best they could never really imagining the world could be any other way. Paul lived in this world, but with him something was different. Like most of the first Christians, Paul actually believed that the world as he knew it was coming to an end and soon. He thought a great apocalypse was near. The death and resurrection of Jesus meant the kingdom of God was breaking in and soon would establish an entirely new cosmic order, God's order, not Rome's. Paul's frame of mind does make a difference to how we read this. Because the choices we make will always have a lot to do with what we think the future holds, won't they? If you think you're going to close on the sale of your house next week, you don't call a contractor about remodeling the kitchen. There's no time for that kind of renovation, no matter how badly it's needed. So the fact that Paul didn't seem interested in incremental political reform doesn't necessarily mean he thought slavery or even the whole stratified Roman world was a good and godly idea. In his mind, there probably was no time for that kind of renovation. But even if you and I don't share such an urgent apocalyptic mindset, Paul ended up showing us something that's true whether we think we have a minute or a millennium to go to work in the world. He showed us that even that as the world goes on in its violent and unjust ways, we can live now according to a different way. The way of Jesus. The way of love. In fact, he showed us that Jesus' way of love, strange and foolish as it seems to a world like this one, was made precisely for life in a world that's broken in the ways this one is, not just for some perfect world that's still to come. A couple of weeks ago, Ardell and I heard Alice Walker speak at the Mississippi Book Festival. I mentioned it in a forum the other day. At one point, she was talking about being a person of integrity and the forces that oppose our doing so. She said, we are fractured by this culture so that there will be more of you to sell things to. In other words, our culture, like all cultures, wants to tell you who it needs you to be in order to extract what it wants from you, not so that you'll be the person God created you to become. And she said also that our work then is to learn to live from our God-given essence in this world. A rosebush or a pine tree doesn't try to be anything but what they are, We need to relearn how to do the same. And then she said, once you've turned away from this fracturing culture and become a unified 
self again, then you must develop a larger capacity for love. Love, she said, is the only thing that will save us from what's looming. When we got back, I went back and read the color purple for the first time in maybe 25 years. And it is stunning the way Alice Walker refused to turn away from the way violence and abuse and suffering make their way through a community and even across generations in that book. She's unflinching about what's worst about the water that is this world. But if you remember, love is how the book ends. She actually took some flack for portraying the abusive, womanizing mister as a chastened, humbler old man sitting on the porch with Seely, whose life and self he'd nearly destroyed countless times over the years. Alice Walker took some flack for letting even somebody as damaged and damaging as Mr. develop a little bit larger capacity to love. And maybe even more remarkable is that old Seely came to be so grounded into her true identity, rather than all the hurt and violence she'd suffered, that she could actually receive love, even a little bit of mistress. It's true the culture Paul was swimming in and sometimes leaked into his letters in pretty unhelpful ways. And let's face it, Paul must have been a piece of work. <laughs> but in his little letter to Philemon, we may see the brilliance of Paul's larger project, which was to turn from a stratified world of violence and domination and form communities of faith in Jesus' way of love. I'm bold enough to command you, he wrote, and we know from his other letters he's plenty bold. Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul's an old man now, writing not from the comfort of his study. You caught this, right? Paul's an old man writing in shackles from a Roman prison. But even there, his imagination won't be kept captive to the rule of Roman fear. He's been swimming in different waters altogether. Paul doesn't even mention those who've imprisoned him. All he can talk about is this slave named Onesimus, worthless in the eyes of, a state, of the state, but a beautiful soul whom Paul has come to love like a son. I'm sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. Welcome him as you'd welcome me. If he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart, he says. Love this slave whom I love. It's been a wrenching few days here in Memphis for many people with the news of Liza Fletcher's abduction. Liza has so many friends and family at Calvary who are holding out hope but living through this nightmare no one should ever have to endure. What is wrong with the world in which this could happen? Add to this a murder on Thursday of Lucy, a co-worker of our daughter Kate back in New York, and then another friend almost losing a daughter to an eating disorder. And I'm just telling you, it's one of those weeks when a lot of us want to step entirely out of the dark waters we're swimming in right now. We might even be wondering, does love even matter? Is it even useful in a world as fractured and violent as this one seems to be right now? can feel like it's not, but our Christian faith says we need the way of love only more 
the more our world breaks apart. Because we do know that we sure can't survive times like these unloved and alone. It's been said that grief is love with nowhere to go, which is to say first that even grief is a form of love, and maybe also that to have even one person with you in that grief is to give that love at least this one other place to go. We need places for our love to go, especially in waters like these. We need the family and friends whose love we depend on and swim in and try to let remind us of who we truly are in the eyes of God at our beloved core. And it may even be in times like these that we need not polite and perfect and put-together saints, but sealies and misters and maybe even old Roman Jew writing about his love for a slave in the darkness of a prison cell. Don't you think that if if Jesus' way of love is what was needed then and there, that very way of love in all its forms may be the only way through the waters we're swimming in right here and right now as well. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.